Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. My name is Jesse. I'm the pastor here. And like we've said, we're beginning a new series today on the book of James that we're calling a theology for life. And we're calling it that because at least according to James, theology, our understanding of God and the things of God isn't some set of abstract ideas that has nothing to do with anything but rather is something worked out and meant to be worked into the very fabric of our lives. Even, as we'll see today, when it comes to our experience of present pain. That's where James begins, and if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there to James chapter 1, and you can follow along with me as I read from verses 1 to 18. Again, James 1, verses 1 to 18, this is God's word. It says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to this little book today because it's part of your bigger book, and I pray that 
we would hear and that we would hear nothing less and nothing more than what you have spoken through your man, James, about what it means to serve your son, Jesus, and about what it means to do that in the context of present pain. And I pray that what is most baffling about this passage would, by the time we're finished this morning, be what we leave most comforted by. That the pain of life is not a meaningless happenstance, but an instrument of your grace to draw us to you and ready us for the day when pain will be no more. In the name of the one who bore the brunt of pain on our behalf, I pray, amen. I remember January 11th, 2010, like it was yesterday. Kath and I had just finished our graduate work up at Trinity in Deerfield. We were spending a little bit of time, the holidays, with her parents down in Ohio and we'd, been, we'd taken an extra week or so just to cool off from what had been a rather chaotic couple of months. I'd taken eight classes that semester. Catherine had actually defended her thesis with a month-old Emmett in her arms. We had graduated together and were just generally tired. But January 11th was the day that we were planning to head home, and I was going to wake up early that morning to pack the car, except that our baby beat the alarm clock. And so as a young dad, a young husband still at the time, just trying to earn as many brownie points as possible, I decided that instead of packing the car, I would put that off and rather help Catherine out by, by taking our baby downstairs so she could get a couple extra hours of sleep. But it was dark, and someone the night before had let, left a board game on the stairs. And I didn't see it. We found out later from the x-ray that the fall that occurred afterwards when I slipped and our baby, my boy, slipped out of my arms onto the hardwood floor of the foyer beneath. We found that the fall had caused a double fracture to his skull. There was a, a subdural hematoma, and it was a pretty touch-and-go situation for about 24 hours of whether it would take his life or at least his livelihood for that time going forward. And I remember driving to the hospital with Kath cradling him because his head at that point had already been so swollen that he couldn't fit in the car seat. I remember driving to the hospital never before having shook my fist so hard at God. As the question began to rise, why? Why? 
Why this? Why us? Why pain? In a world that we wanted so badly to think was governed by a God who was both all good and all powerful. Why pain? And it's not good enough, really, just to get God off the hook as the one responsible for it. As if, it, as if the answer uh, or the comfort lies in there not being a why. For those of us stuck in and branded by the pain of life, we have a gut-deep need to know that God is somehow working his purposes through it. which in a unique way is precisely what James tells us in the opening verses of this little book. Taking this question, why pain, in three passes. Telling us first, why pain is good. Second, why pain is necessary. And third, why pain works. And that's what we'll be looking at with James this morning. Why pain's good, why pain's necessary, and why pain works. But to frame it, it's worth just hearing first what James says in verse 1. Because what James tells us about pain in this passage isn't for everyone. He opens his book with these words, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. And what you've got to understand is that this James is almost certainly the younger brother of Jesus, the first naturally born son of Mary and Joseph. But rather than claim that kinship and write out of that family relationship, James names himself what? a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord in the sense that Jesus had risen from the dead. That's what that title had come to mean in James' day. And Christ in the sense that Jesus had died a sacrificial death on the cross. So that, so that rather than see himself as Jesus' brother, these two aspects of Jesus' lordship and Christhood had fundamentally changed the relationship. So that by the time James wrote, he, he now saw himself as Jesus' servant, living in gratitude for the cross and submission to Jesus' throne. Where it may appear then that James writes to the Jewish nation if these words that follow are, are, are call to mind or, or cause any recollection of, of how history went. Where it appears then that James writes to the Jewish nation, as many have assumed, to the 12 tribes of ethnic Israel. He doesn't but rather writes to those like him who were part of God's people as servants of Jesus whether born into the family tree or grafted in by grace, because without exception, all God's true children serve God's true son. 
which means James writes to those who are in the dispersion, he says, not after some ethnic exile, but rather to those who'd who'd been scattered over the earth after the persecutions of the first century. To those like him, living under the king while awaiting the kingdom. Which means that when he comes to the topic of pain in verse 2, James isn't just writing for the Jews, but neither is he writing for everyone, but is writing about the purpose of pain in the life of the believer, in the life of those who've placed their trust in Jesus, so that if you've put your trust in and are living as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, You can rest in what James says as you rest in Jesus. But if you haven't, and you aren't, then you can't. For the believer, though, James tells us first why pain is good. And for James, it's quite simple. Pain is good because pain perfects. Listen to his words again, starting in verse 2. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith by trial produces steadfastness. Not that steadfastness is the end, but let steadfastness, he says, have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Pain perfects. And for James, perfection is all about living in God's world, God's way, with God at the center of it, under God's king. Pain perfects in the sense that it it makes us who we're meant to be, who we're supposed to be. It is the pathway to spiritual maturity. It's good, not in and of itself, but because it is God's means to God's end, that it is allowed to persist to carry out God's purposes. And with the end in mind, James can make the otherwise outrageous statement that for those living in service to Jesus, they not only can but ought to count the trials of life as absolute joy. Is that not outrageous? This is not something that we are supposed to readily understand, to count the pain of life as joy. And James knows this. He knows it's it's not going to be apparent as to why such things are to be celebrated. He knows this. Everything from a stub toe to hearing of yet another diagnosis of yet another loved one, or maybe even of you. Now, stripped of dignity and stripped of life. He knows it's not apparent. But when counted, and it's a very particular word, when counted, when pain is weighed out and measured up, considered against the end at which it is aimed, the problem of pain is outweighed by the purpose for which God uses it. Recently, I started working out. I know, you can't tell, 
That's because I am doing this progressive program that I am only a little bit into now. I'm only a little bit into. And I've just now reached the physical fitness of an 11-year-old, as Emmett particularly likes to point out. But, you know, I am bearing with it. I am pushing through the pain of my five exercises a day, 11 minutes a day workout, and pushing through the pain. Why? Because the benefits outweigh the cost. Now, for me, I do not think when it comes to working out that the benefits outweigh the cost by much, (laughs) which is why this is the program that I am willing to cooperate with. For a time. But James is saying that for the pain that, that tests faith, James is saying that for the pain that leads through patience to perfection, to spiritual maturity, the end at which it is aimed justifies the means entirely. Pain is good because pain perfects. If all there is is what meets the eye, pain is not good. But if there's more than we can see, and if pain is part of God's plan to bring us to perfection, then count it all joy. Every diagnosis, every disappointment, whenever you meet trials of various kinds, not because the particulars are to be blamed on God, James doesn't address here the the why me question or why some of us have to face atrocities that others are spared from. But for the bigger question of why pain and, and for the more specific question of why pain is good, it's because for the one who trusts in God, all of it is an instrument by which God grows us up and draws us to himself. Sort of like gravity, right? The law of gravity doesn't explain why certain people have to deal more with the law of attraction than others. You blame that stuff on McDonald's, how often you you frequent the drive-thru, right? And yet the law of gravity does explain why everyone remains firmly planted on the ground. And James says it's, it's the same with pain. Why pain is good. Because this is how the system is set up. That for the one who puts their faith in God, pain perfects all of it. Because that's what it's meant to do. That's why God allows it to persist. All of the brokenness. That's why God allows it to persist. So that in the lives of his own, it draws them closer to him. But for the one who doesn't, put their faith in God? That's not what it does. So that as much as James wants to emphasize the end, that pain perfects, that you might lack nothing, as he says, he doesn't want us to forget the beginning, that the process begins with faith, hinges on faith. And so from lacking nothing in verse 4, you could see it there, James retraces his steps in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, which for James as a Jew is in a sense everything. 
If any of you lacks wisdom, seeing God's world, God's way, with God at the center of it, and then living that out. Pain perfects that you'll lack nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, which is everything, James says, ask God. But the emphasis here isn't on the fact, isn't on the, the that you ask. It's on the how, right? If you look closer at this, it's on the how. He says, but let him ask in faith. With no doubting. For the one who doubts, he says, is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person, James says, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. The process won't work. He is a double-minded man. Double-souled is what it says. Unstable in all his ways. So ask in faith. But why faith? Doesn't that seem a little hokey? Doesn't this seem like we've slipped into some sort of Harry Potter wizardry? Doesn't it seem like we've, uh, we've somehow ended up on the wrong side of this where you've got to ask with just the right words in just the right way to get God to do just what you want? Doesn't it seem like that? And what does that even mean to ask in faith. I think what James is saying is that when we, when we ask for wisdom, which is, an again, and again, is in a sense everything, perfection, completion, spiritual maturity, for God to grow us up, we need a faith that continues to trust even when that faith is tested. Because God's way of growing us up, whether you call it wisdom or whatever, is always the same by putting that faith to the test, by putting us through the pain. I remember as a kid snapping my arm, displacing the bone. I remember cradling it all the way to the doctors. It killed. And then I remember the doctor explaining what he had to do, what he was about to do, asking my parents to leave the room. And I remember him saying that for, for it to work, I had to trust that he knew what he was doing, even though his resetting the bone and the healing process that was going to follow was going to be unbelievably painful. But that if I did, if I, if I trusted him more than myself, if I trusted the process that he was putting in place, after he was done, the bone would be better than it had ever been before. Pain is good because pain perfects. It is God's means of getting us to God's end. And the one who desires God's end, if you want to live in God's world rightly, with God at the center of it, under God's king, you got to trust God's means. Otherwise, when they experience the pain, when we experience the pain, rather than grow us up or draw us close, it's going to drive us away. Because pain only works for the one who is trusting, who trusts the one working through it. 
Why is pain good? Because pain perfects. But a question that we're left with is why is pain necessary? It may be good, but why is it necessary? Well, according to James, pain is necessary because this is how God points. And here we're picking up in verse 9 where James says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. And what you've got to understand is that the lowly are those who have nothing to hang on to. They're the ones who, who have no control of life whatsoever. They have no cultural currency. They're the abject and the poor whose, whose only comfort is if someday God reaches down and lifts them out of the pit. So for the lowly, pain points in the sense that it instills in them an eternal perspective that their only hope is in an eternal reward. They are to boast in the exaltation to come. But for the rich, everything is apparently under control. They don't live in God's world God's way because They're living only for themselves, avoiding present pain at all costs, living for nothing but present pleasure, living it up one relationship to the next, one rehab visit to the next. And yet unless something changes, they're headed for a future pain that will never end. So James calls them to boast in their humiliation, to glory in the stock market crashing, to take pride in a business going bust. Or when they figure out immortality isn't about Botox, and it cannot be bought. Because for them, for the rich, present pain points in the sense that it breaks them of their fixation with the here and now and drives them to look for something better. For rich and poor alike, pain points. There's a sign on Route 65. We just passed it recently on a trip that Catherine and I were on between here and Indianapolis that reads different depending on the direction you're headed. Have you seen it? If you're headed towards Indianapolis south on I-65, the sign is quite affirming. Reads in Letters larger than life. Jesus is real. I don't think it has anything to do with Indianapolis. If you're headed towards Chicago, the sign reads very different. The message plastered on the billboard is heaven, hell is real. Two very different messages. Same sign. And James says, so pain. That depending on what you're living for, the pleasures of this world or the longing of the pleasures of the next, pain will read very different. And yet it points for lowly and rich, which really has nothing to do with money, very little to do with money, and it's not essentially about money. 
it'll read very differently to both it will say that there is only satisfaction to come and that there is no true satisfaction in the here and now. It's as C.S. Lewis said, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world, to remind us, like James says, that left to our pursuit of this world, if we follow in the way of the, the rich here, that left to the pursuit of this world, we all like a flower of the grass will pass away. That as Lewis says elsewhere, no doubt pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. That, that it may lead to final unrepented rebellion. But that likewise it gives the only opportunity for amendment. That it removes the veil and plants the flag of truth in the rebel soul. And we learn from sorrow where to set our eyes. The poem of Robert Browning Hamilton captures it well. He says, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word, said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. That pain is necessary because it's how God points and instills in us an eternal perspective that according to James is all about an eternal destiny, either life, or death. So that on the one hand, James says in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. But that on the other hand, for those who don't want to live for God, who want to live only for themselves, who aren't drawn by the pain, but driven away by it, that even though God never desires it for anyone, James says that their desire to be their own God inevitably gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Why pain is good? Because pain perfects. Why pain is necessary? Because pain is how God points. But why, you might ask, does pain work? Well, according to James, it works because it is purposed. Purposed by God. And though this idea is underlying all that we've already heard, listen to how James describes it in verse 16. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no sh variation or shadow due to change. He says, do not be deceived. Because it's with the pain of life that we're in the most danger of drawing the wrong conclusions about God, right? Right? 
That we don't think pain is good because we don't see its end. And we don't think pain is necessary because we don't realize how much we need it. And we conclude, therefore, on the basis of pain, that God is either not as good as we had hoped or else not as capable as we had supposed. But James says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And I think the love he's talking about is not here his own love for these individuals, but the love of God. That we ought not be deceived as those loved by God. Because pain comes from the God who loves us and is good and necessary and works because it is purposed by him. Does that not shatter the earth? Of our experiences, the pain of life. That every good gift and every perfect gift, not just the blank blessings of life, but the gifts that are intended for our good. That's what it means, good gifts. And the gifts that lead to perfection. That's what perfect means for James. It's the end at which pain is aimed, that every good and perfect gift, including, and in this context, especially the pain, James says it comes from above. You know, we often use this verse in the context of weddings, that every good and perfect gift is from above. But what groom really needs to hear these words? What groom is really in danger of thinking their bride isn't a gift from God? Because that's what James is saying. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Remember, the woman you're about to marry is your good gift, your perfect gift. Do not be deceived. Who needs to hear that on the wedding day? If these words are for grooms at all, they're not so much for the wedding as they are for the marriage. And then they're for so much more, right? That do not be deceived, even the pain that comes in the context of your most intimate relationships is part of how God intends to draw you close and grow you up. That while no marriage is perfect, every relationship, every marriage has the potential to perfect. James says here that it's pain that is given from above. And the comfort for him is that it comes down from the Father of lights. The father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Because when it comes to change, God is like the sun. For James, change was marked by shadows. Cast in the morning as the sun rose in the east. Cast at dusk as the sun sank in the west. But the sun itself is not what changes. It is one of the few objects in the created order that has no shadow. The sun stays the same 
fixed and burning now as we have ever known it. And the point is that with pain, all and all other parts of God's plan to grow us into who we're supposed to be, his intentions from one moment to the next do not vary. So James goes on to say in verse 18 that of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So don't be deceived. That somehow the one who brought you forth by the word of his gospel about the word of his son isn't likewise bringing you up through the pain. Doesn't likewise intend to bring you up through the pain. Same father. Same loving intentions. So that pain isn't just a problem to solve, but part of his plan. To make us into who we're made to be. To live in God's world, God's way, with God at the center of it, living under God's king. And one day, to live in his kingdom forevermore. So that pain in the life of the believer is good because it perfects. Is necessary because it's how God points and works because pain is purposed by a Father who loves us. You know, this little book was probably the first of the 27 documents of the New Testament to have been written. And I find it interesting that as the earliest written witness of the closest followers of Jesus, that it begins by addressing the purpose of pain with a depth that no other writer in the history of redemption ever had. The old is plenty good at raising the questions. But it was only this side of the cross that we were given the most substantial answers. And yet as much as this little book answers the question, why pain? At the end of it, I'm left wondering, why James? Left wondering what James saw that up until that point in history, no other writer ever had. And the only answer I could think of is that he saw his brother. He saw Jesus. That he saw Jesus bear the brunt of pain on the cross. That he saw Jesus then transform it by the power of the resurrection. Because up until Jesus, the puzzle of pain had a gaping hole right in the middle of it. But by his death and resurrection, Jesus proved that pain wasn't just the punishment for our walking away from God. It was, in fact, the instrument by which God would pave the way back to himself. James saw Jesus 
and as one who identified himself from that point on and forevermore as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, he saw that pain is good because pain perfects. For the believer, that that pain is necessary because it points not only to the brokenness of this world and the glory of the next, but to the one who would fix it. And that it works because it is purposed by the hand of a loving God. I remember January 11th, 2010, like it was yesterday. But it's not because on that day it raised for me the question, like never before, why pain? It's because on that day, I began like never before to see the answer, to understand the answer. But even on that day, I didn't see it in myself. I'll tell you the story. We were driving to the hospital. Catherine again was cradling Emmett in her arms. And I was in the seat next to her, cursing the God who had made me. Cursing the God who had allowed it to happen. And begging that same God to undo what only he could have prevented. And in the midst of doing that, Whispering that, I heard next to me a very different sort of prayer. I heard next to me Catherine begin to say out loud, God, we don't know why, but we know that His life is in your hands as much now as it was when he fell. We know that he is yours. He was yours to give. He's yours to take away. And if you take him, teach us to trust and teach us to cling only to Jesus. And seeing it in her, I began to see it for myself. The pain is good. It can be good. It has the possibility of being good for those who in faith place themselves in the hands of a loving God. Good because it perfects. Part of the process in which a loving God teaches us to live in His world, His way under His loving Son. That it's necessary because for those like me, we need it to point, to point beyond whatever we're going after in this world, to point us to the next, and to point us to the one who can get us there. And that pain works because it is purpose by the Father who by the word of truth 
brought us forth and tends to bring us forth and by pain bring us up and bring us back to himself. That unlike some, God is a father who never slips and never lets his own, whether Jesus or anyone after, slip out of his arms. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, many of us walked in here today with undescribable pain. And many of us feel like we've been hanging on and hanging on to the hope that maybe, just maybe, you'll bring it to an end. My prayer, though, as we leave here today, looking forward to the day you will bring it to an end, is whether or not that end comes today the pain itself would have its intended effect. That by it, whether a diagnosis or a disappointment, a death or the threat of death, that by it you'd squeeze the desire to be our own kings out of our hearts and teach us as never before to throw ourselves in everything at the feet of King Jesus in whose name I pray, amen. The words, at least to the verses of that song, were written by a man named William Cooper as the last song that he ever penned. A man who struggled for almost his entire life with a debilitating depression with which he eventually went to the grave. And yet, he was a man who saw through the pain, a God who ultimately meant it for his good, that allows the pain to persist, to bring us to the end of ourselves and to the beginning of a relationship with him. I don't know where you're at, I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what you're leaving here with today. But I pray through the words of James that you would do so knowing the one who bore the brunt of pain on your behalf. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.